Welcome to the last ever edition of Tisky Sour. It's been a good run, but all good things have to come to an end. Aaron Bastani, I'm going to miss you. It's been emotional. Is that all you've got to say? Four years of Tisky Sour, and that's all you can say. It's been emotional. Come on, Aaron. If it's good enough for Vinnie Jones and Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, <laughs> it's good enough for me. The spoiler, of course, is that we're not going anywhere. But we are having a name change. Tisky Sour is going. Navarra Live is arriving next week at 6 p.m. instead of 7 p.m. And this is the important bit of news. It will be nightly. So every weeknight at 6 p.m., Navarra Live will be replacing Tisky Sour. Since the start of the war in Ukraine, we've become used to seeing energy companies posting huge profits. With energy prices high, they've enjoyed enormous windfalls for no extra effort. But this week, it got truly ridiculous. Shell has posted their latest earnings, and they are the highest in its 115-year history. In the last quarter of 2022, the company pocketed $10 billion. That brought their total profits for the year to $40 billion, or £32 billion. To put that in context, there are 116 countries whose GDPs are less than that. So the whole economy of a country in a year, 116 of them lower than Shell's profits last year. It's also double the figure Shell made in 2021. Yet, despite that huge profit, Shell paid just $134 million in UK tax last year. That's 0.3% of the total profit. Shell claims that worldwide, so they say we're a, we're a global company, this is what matters, their tax bill was $13 billion. Even if we are to take them at that word, that's still a lower tax rate than the rest of us pay when we're earning much less than $40 billion. In response to Shell's profit announcement, Shadow Climate Secretary Ed Miliband said this, as the British people face an energy price hike of 40% in April, the government is letting the fossil fuel companies making bumper profits off the hook with their refusal to implement a proper windfall tax. Labour would stop the energy price cap going up in April because it's only right that the companies making unexpected windfall profits from the proceeds of war pay their fair share. As you can imagine, the Tories have a different view. This is from Rishi Sunak's spokesperson. We think the windfall tax strikes a balance between funding cost of living support while encouraging investment in order to bolster the UK's energy security. We have made it clear that we want to encourage a reinvestment of the sector's profits to support the economy, jobs and energy security. And that's why the more investment a firm makes into the UK, the less tax they will pay. Now, the argument there is that lower taxes mean Shell will invest more into energy production. But given we need to wean ourselves off Shell's main product, which is, of course, fossil fuels, it's unclear that's really such a good idea. Of course, defenders of the fossil fuel giants will say they've changed, they're investing in renewables now, it's a different company, they'll be central to the green transition. But a story from the United States this week should quash any such delusions. The Washington Post reports this. In Shell's most recent annual report, the company said it directed 12% of its capital expenditure to renewables and energy solutions in 2021. But according to global witness analysis of figures reported by Shell, the company directed just 1.5% of its capital expenditure to developing renewable energy sources such as wind and solar power. The rest of the spending went towards gas. As a result, Global Witness alleges Shell has misled investors about its commitment to transitioning away from fossil fuels and reducing its exposure to climate-related risks. Now, of course, if some of that gas is fracked, 
the result for our environment will be even more disastrous because of all the methane that is released in that process of those little explosions they have underground. Methane gets released into the atmosphere and it's a much more damaging gas than even carbon dioxide. It's so difficult to actually be on top of the facts with this story, Michael. And that, I think, is the responsibility of, yes, the media, but also I think your position needs to be clear about what is happening. So right now, on oil and gas that's coming out of the North Sea, you have to pay about 75% rate of tax on your profits on drilling in the North Sea. Obviously, very high rate of tax. And what I've seen repeatedly with regards to this story in the media is, we already taxed the backside off of Shell and BP, 75%, oh my God. You can't push it up further because, of course, then they would uh, relocate. Shell, of course, used to be located in both the Netherlands and the UK. Today, it's just the UK, domiciled here. And people say, well, if it wasn't domiciled here, we'd lose loads of revenues. I mean, that's questionable. And it would be an inhospitable place to do business. A lot of that's baloney, Michael, because this is obviously it's global operations. $40 billion is, I think, the third highest global profit announced by a UK firm ever after British American Tobacco and Vodafone. It's the highest profits that Shell have recorded in 115 years. They are printing money right now. But most of that, nearly all of it actually, is profits from outside the UK. So this is not you know, North Sea oil and gas for what it's worth. So they're going to be paying very, very, very little tax on this profit. Very little. And so I think that's the first point. Don't conflate the tax that's imposed on oil and gas extracted from the North Sea. I mean, we can have that conversation about keeping it in the ground anyway, but it's a separate one. And what we're seeing here, you know, last year, Shell in October was saying they expected to pay no tax under the new levy that had been announced. No tax. And so a lot of the arguments that you hear from the right against Labour's proposal, against the idea of imposing a new windfall tax, are actually not grounded in fact. You know, talking about Tax that applies to North Sea oil operations is not relevant here. 40 billion, a huge sum of money. And you know what? We could impose a windfall tax on Shell, and that could fund a VAT cut that would help businesses up and down this country on every single high street in the UK, put money in the back pocket of the UK consumer, and that would be hugely popular. Nobody's talking about it, and I want to know why. It's also interesting, you often hear sort of governments say, well, if we tax them, they'll just go abroad. Now, that would be a I think more plausible or argument I'd be more you know willing to take on its word if the government had a good record when it comes to stopping the race to the bottom when it comes to tax but given our relationship to the crown dependencies you know so many of the top tax avoidance sort of hot spots in the world have very strong connections to the UK lots of them are crown dependencies so we can step in you know we are big supporters of tax avoidance on the world scale. So for Britain to say, oh, it's completely out of our control. Obviously, we'd love to tax the big companies, but they're very mobile these days. What can you do? We are not a country which is trying to counter that. So it just comes across as very disingenuous to me. This isn't the only story of oil and gas companies taking us for a ride, because it's not just producers that are being accused of bad behavior this week. Retailers as well. So British Gas has come under fire for using debt collectors to break into vulnerable customers' homes and then force-fitting pay-as-you-go meters. The revelations were from The Times, who put a reporter undercover with the debt collection agency Arvato. British Gas uses Arvato to pursue unpaid bills. Here's what happened at one home. Hello, it's British Gas, a gas supplier. We're here with a court warrant. Can you please open the door? I've got lots of work for you. 
On some of the coldest days in recent weeks, I was in teams of either four or five men, breaking into families' homes and force-fitting pay-as-you-go meters for British gas. The debt collection teams are deployed after courts sign off warrants on behalf of the energy firms. The companies are meant to screen for vulnerabilities. However, we broke into this home, even though a neighbor had told us there was a single dad and three children living inside. We are not publishing footage from inside this home to protect the privacy of the family. The family was out, but on the living room floor there were toys for young children, Peppa Pig figurines, a small pink bicycle, and a mini guitar. In the kitchen, there was a child's Ventolin asthma inhaler and eczema cream. The debt collector leading the team did not seem phased by the signs that children were living in the home. For the benefit of court recording, uh, no inside property, uh, dog has been contained by dog handler, uh, no risks, no vulnerabilities uh, on site, uh, ending court recording now. The British gas engineer explained how he thought the family would probably get cut off from their heating. He said the account was in the generic name of occupier, so they might not automatically be sent a top-up card. You won't get sent a card, so he's going to go off the fly. Oh, what? Well, 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 yeah, I think he'll send them a card. Oh, thank you. So it'll be, be £10 emergency, and then that's it, and they'll go off the fly. The debt collectors sat on the family's sofa, and one yeah. messed around with the children's <laughs> toys. After almost two hours, the job was done. The debt collector leading the team disappeared for a while, and the team waited for him outside. What will you do? Toilet. Oh, right. The same agent offered me tips on judging a customer's vulnerability. But if they're just saying, oh, I'm a single mum and I've got three kids and that's, that's not a vulnerability. Right. It is a vulnerability, but I'm, uh, I'm a bit old school and a bit hard-nosed. Wow. This is really serious for the people involved, right? I know, you know people watching that think, God, these people, these, these attitudes, they seem so, so backward. But the material impact here is you, you're going to have single mums, mums with young children, young, young children with asthma, etc., who are living in... Houses without any heating. Appalling. The undercover journalist also reported this. Before starting as a debt collector, I had four days of video training describing the warrant process. The Arvato trainer said, honestly, it's a little bit cheeky. Basically, the government says you can't disconnect residential customers. So what we do is we install a prepayment meter. And then if they don't top up, they self-disconnect. So we don't actually disconnect them. It's a bit of a laughable loophole asked by one of the new recruits whether we would stop force-fitting a meter on the day in exceptional circumstances, the trainer said, that person could tell you that their entire family of 50 were in a horrific aeroplane crash and were the sole survivor, and we'd still be saying, that's a shame, but we are changing your meter. The revelations have led some to call for all force-fitting to be banned. Ed Miliband spoke to Times Radio's John Pienaar. On the prepayment metering scandal, just tell me your thoughts. Well, I think scandal is the right word, John. You know, I think people will be outraged and appalled that in Britain in 2023, you've got energy companies forcing their way into people's homes and installing prepayment meters for some of the most vulnerable people in our society. And the government has got to act. The government has got to put in place a ban while we sort this system out. Because, you know, when you look at the details of this system, it's not supposed to be for vulnerable people, but there's no proper definition of vulnerability. It's mm. not at all clear what, the, what, what it means that this should be a last resort. Uh, if there's no clarity on the amount of credit people on prepayment meters should get. And, and most outrageously, John, 
people on prepayment meters are paying more for their energy than, than anyone else. And all yeah. of those things have to change. Chris O'Shea is head of Centrica, the company that owns British Gas. He spoke to Sky News about the scandal. When did you find out about this? Good morning, Ian. Thanks very much for having me on. Um, I was made aware on Monday about the Times investigation uh, and took immediate action when I heard some of the allegations. We haven't yet had the full details from the Times. We've asked them for, for all of the information we've got so that we can have a proper investigation. The first thing we did was to spend our VATO, the, uh, the contractor, I think it's let us down hugely. Um, the second thing was to launch an independent investigation led by our general counsel. And then yesterday morning, um, when we saw some of the information from the Times, what we did was we um, announced that we were going to suspend all prepayment meter installations under uh, warrant until at least the end of this winter. I just want to make sure that we can establish exactly what's going on. We've clearly got it wrong here. And we're going to fix that. We don't get everything right. We get more right than wrong. But when we get it wrong, we fix it. So I just want to establish the facts. Every single one of our customers deserves to be treated with respect. But how did you feel when you first saw this footage? Um, disappointed, livid, gutted. Um, you know, this is this is not who I am. It's not the standards I set myself. It's not the standards that um, I set in the company. It's not who we are. It's not how we do business. Um, there's no excuse. It's, uh, it's deeply, deeply disappointing. Um, quite distressing, what? actually. It's not who we are, it's not how we do business, but the facts beg to differ. Last month, Energy Secretary Grant Shapps wrote to the energy suppliers instructing them to stop force-fitting metres, but British Gas continued anyway, only putting an end to the practice once the Times exposed them. I think the CEO of Centrica should resign. I think it's absolutely abhorrent. If he was unaware of this, and he is the top dog in that organisation, I think that speaks volumes of him. It's not who I am. Well, who you are is somebody who's clearly not on top of the facts with regards to how your company operates and the implications it has for the most vulnerable people in society. You need to own that. And no inquiry, which is good, nor freezing your relationship with Avato, which is good, is going to change that. I think it's absolutely extraordinary. You have court orders. I find this actually remarkable, Michael, that it's legal. This to me, if, you, if you'd said to me, people are breaking into homes and installing prepayment meets, so I thought it's breaking and entering, surely. It's a criminal offence. Surely. They're not being invited into the house. That's often how it works with bailiffs, right? Or, or invited into the property or permitted to enter. Surely, surely this is criminal activity. So he, he knows that they use third parties with court orders to force these uh, prepayment meters in. He, he knows that. He, that is the modus operandi here. It's happening in many places right across the country. And again, I think it really does speak to the, the extent that we have a problem in this country with boardroom bullshitters, whether it's the Royal Mail, the train companies, Centrica, you know, the fact that Centrica use an outsourced company to collect an debt, And then we have this bizarre, and it's so key to neoliberalism, Michael. Nobody's responsible for anybody. Nobody's accountable. Nobody's accountable anymore in, in politics or public life or business because everything is outsourced to somebody who's outsourced it, somebody who's outsourced it, somebody who's outsourced it. And the person who executed it right, right at the bottom of the chain, well, they were freelance. They were, they were zero hours. They weren't actually contracted. You know, they were temporarily with us. They've been let go now. No scrutiny or accountability. It's absolutely appalling and a very dishonorable way to, to build a society fundamentally. And that is how we've built society over the last 40 years. I was just looking up the bailiffs thing. Are they allowed to force an enter? The government said bailiffs are allowed to force their way into your home to collect unpaid criminal fines, income tax or stamp duty, but only as a last resort. So I suppose that doesn't mention the electricity thing there. I know the, sort of the, the mainstream argument on this has been that the energy companies are bound to use these prepayment meters as only as a last resort, and they're also supposed to take into account the vulnerability of people. So I was listening to the radio this morning, and 
one of the representatives, Eva, it might have even been off-gem, actually. I can't remember if it was off-gem or one of the companies, the regulators. He was saying, well, they do need some of these powers because there are people who don't pay their bills, even though they're not vulnerable and they have got money. So he's saying they're paying their Netflix, they're paying their um, all these other bills, but they're not paying gas and electricity because they think they can get away with it. So that's, that's the argument they're putting forward. If we don't have this enforcement mechanism, it's just going to become a free lunch. I wonder how much that chap earns a year, Michael, and what his credit rating is. Everybody knows if you don't pay your bills, you get a poor credit rating, you can't access credit. And the people who depend on access to credit the most, the people right at the bottom of the economic food chain in this country. I've been there, you've been there, I'm sure most of our audience have been there because we live in the real world, unlike this gentleman on Radio 4. So the idea that there are no disincentives and that, oh, well, then nobody would ever pay for any bills. No, because very quickly, that's a self-defeating logic. We all know that because we, we're normal, regular people, unlike the the rodents that uh, inhabit the upper echelons of the FTSE 250. And also, Netflix is a lot cheaper than gas and electricity. So someone still having a Netflix account is not evidence that they can pay for gas and electric, especially not at the moment. Next story. Just last week, Jeremy Hunt gave a speech where he said this. Declinism about Britain is just wrong. It's always been wrong in the past, and it's wrong today. Some of the gloom is based on statistics that don't reflect the whole picture. That was the Chancellor of the Exchequer begging people to be more positive about the UK economy. Economists, though, haven't been heeding his call. This was Stephanie Flanders, head of Bloomberg Economics, speaking to CNN this week. The nature of poverty has changed. So you talked about the late 70s, early 80s. The predictor of whether you were going to be poor in this country then was if you were old or if you were unemployed. Now, a majority of poor households do contain at least one worker because of the way that wages at the lower end, it's also been the case in the US, have fallen down relative, relative to others. And I think it's striking, you know, we say we're a rich country, we're a G7 country, but the poorest fifth, fifth of the population are now much poorer here than most of the poorest countries in Central and Eastern Europe. So we're not, there is a big chunk of the population for whom that is not the case, that they do not live in a rich country. They actually would be better off, even as a poor household, they would be better off in quite poor countries in, in, in the European Union. So that, that's, a, that's a growing issue which has predates Brexit. So Stephanie Flan is very much a mainstream economic ec- economist, sorry, made a really important point there. We've long known that Britain is more unequal than most of our peers in Europe, but the justification has normally been, you know, that we need inequality to drive growth and that growth will mean poor people are better off in the long run. So you might be poorer compared to the rich, but a rising tide will lift all boats. That's the argument we've been fed for about four decades. Now, that was always bullshit. Germany and the Scandinavian countries have always had lower inequality and higher growth than Britain. That's always been the case. But now, as Stephanie Flanders was explaining, that also applies to the ex-communist countries of Eastern Europe. So countries we thought were much poorer than ourselves. It's better to be poor there than here. So she didn't specify exactly what countries she was talking to. There's an FT article recently saying Slovenia is much better to be poor in Slovenia than poor in Britain, a country that we've traditionally thought of as much poorer than ourselves. I think to be fair, it's one of the richer countries of, of Eastern Europe. I think Czech Republic is a, in a similar situation. Another economist who hasn't got Jeremy Hunt's message to be positive is Torsten Bell from the Resolution Foundation. He said this to Politics Joe this week. The big picture that people need to understand about the British economy is that we're living with the results of two different decades. So we're living with the, uh, the high inequality that the 1980s gave us, the, um, uh, when earnings spread out, we saw a big increase in unemployment for those on lowest 
incomes, but those at the top and the middle did really well in the 1980s. And although inequality, everyone says, is always getting worse, broadly, that's not true. Broadly, we're just living with the inequality of the 1980s. That's given us a high level of inequality, the, um, the highest of any major economy in Europe. And then on top of that, we've got the slow growth of the 2010s, the stagnation of the 2010s. And it's the two together that define the big picture of Britain in the 2020s before the cost of living crisis came on and smacked us in the face. On your bigger question, which is why is a rich country struggling broadly, which is a good question for us all to be focused on, then I think it is this interaction between the slow growth that's mean, meant that we have got poorer relative to the countries we consider ourselves comparable to. Maybe we shouldn't, but we do. So France, Germany, the Netherlands, some people in America, the ones that are more on the optimistic end. Um, but like Australia, Canada, uh, those are the countries, I, th I think those are reasonable comparisons. Those are the ones I think most punters have in their heads as like, okay, we're a bit like that. The, the slow growth of the last uh, 15 years, the, um, so not just after 2010, but before 2010, big financial crisis, people remember, when I was busy nationalizing banks in the treasury, the, um, uh, they, that slower growth means that on average, we're a lot poorer than those countries now. And then when you take into account that we're more unequal than all of the ones I mentioned, except for the US, which is like an inequality basket case, so let's forget it. But all the others, we're more unequal. Once we take that into account, poorer households in Britain are far poorer than poorer households in France, Germany. Right? And that's the key problem. And then when you have a cost of living crisis driven by the cost of essentials, so energy, food, which are imported, so we, can't, we don't set the price as a global price for them, or at least a European price for energy. So we've got to pay it, whatever, then poorer households are going to really struggle. And they're going to struggle, particularly in the UK, because they're so much poorer than their equivalents in France and Germany. Aaron, Jeremy Hunt wants everyone to be positive about the UK economy. Economists aren't following suit. They're not following his lead. Is he going to be pissed off? Well, we've been hearing this for 15 years. Be positive, be upbeat. You know, again, it's very easy for Jeremy Hunt to say in his Savile Row suit and his, you know, Viola Milano or God knows what tie he's wearing, 200 pound tie. He's probably wearing a tie that's, you know, costs more than, you know, what we give somebody for two weeks on uh, Job Seekers Allowance. It's very easy for him to say that our best days are ahead of us. No, they ain't. No, they ain't. We've had 15 appalling years in this country. We're halfway through a, lost, a second lost decade. We're going to have a third lost decade at this rate. What I find particularly interesting, Michael, is he had Stephanie Flanders there saying, oh, this is terrible, bad decisions have been made. The, the UK now is structurally screwed. I think it's going to take a, a really long time to turn this around. A really long time. And I don't want to say that because, of course, it lets a future Labour government or a left-wing government off the hook because they, they can say, well, we can't do everything because we have to be realistic. But it's also true. You know, the decisions that were made, I think, between 2008 and, and 2015, particularly after 2010 by the coalition government, were history-making. They were epochal. They will have implications to this country for decades. Um, and ironically, Stephanie Flanders was a BBC journalist at the time. She was, one of co she was one of a coterie of journalists at the BBC. I think cheerleading austerity. Maybe my memory is failing me, but I do distinctly recall her leaving the BBC to work at JP Morgan in 2013. Probably said, says something about her, you know, her political commitments to journalism or making lots of money. Often the two don't go together. So it is interesting that now somebody like Stephanie Flanders can look back and go, oh, austerity, that was a bad idea. Let's say then 2010, when actually it kind of mattered what you had to think on the subject. Torsten Bell has been far more consistent, coherent on the subject. You know, as he advised Ed Miliband prior to 2015, I believe, as economics advisor. And yes, I mean, it's very easy to say as an economist, the government are getting it wrong. What I find really interesting, Michael, is a former journalist who was cheerleading austerity now saying, actually, 
that was a really bad look. I wonder who's responsible. Well, in part, you, Stephanie. Yeah, it still doesn't seem like people, you know, because there is this broad recognition now that Britain is is poor. We're doing badly. We, we've got poorer or we've stagnated while other people have overtaken us. And it's especially bad. I mean, I, I do think that Torsten Bell, he's been doing sort of the media round recently. And it is very coherent what he's saying. You know, he's saying we, we have this double problem, which we have high levels of inequality and low levels of growth. That's especially bad for people at the bottom, right? Because if you have high levels of inequality, but you're also growing really fast, then to some degree, the rising tide will lift to some degree some boats. I mean, it's overstated basically everywhere. But if you've got the worst of both worlds, then you're in the shitty situation that we are in. I'm, you know, I'm sure he puts forward you know, some real social democratic solutions. But I think you are seeing this admission from so many people that growth isn't working. And I don't really see this consensus towards saying, well, look, the reason they have higher standards of living in, on the continent is because they invest shed loads more money in their economy. Like the, there's no one sort of saying, oh, the reason France has higher productivity, they work fewer hours for higher incomes is because their tax rate is 50%. And therefore, the state is able to take a real leading role in investment into the economy. It seems odd to me that we've got both this widespread recognition that our economic model is broken, and then also this new consensus that tax isn't allowed to rise, right? Because if, if you look at all those countries which are doing better, I mean, America is slightly different. America has lower taxes and higher levels of growth, but they're also like the world hegemon, the whole world uses the dollar, somewhat exceptional. If you look at countries which are in America on the continent, they all have higher levels of tax, higher growth, higher investment, higher wages. So why have we you know, got this now unchallenged consensus that because tax is at 37% of GDP, it can't possibly go any higher? I mean, what do you think about that, Aaron? Yeah, I think it's spot on, Michael. I think that the comparison as well with the United States, you know, Torsten Bell says it's a bit sort of wishful thinking to say that we should be as wealthy as the US. GDP per capita, I think in 2007, six, seven, we briefly overtook the US. Now, look, these numbers don't mean very much necessarily, right? The US has a lower life expectancy than Cuba. You're more likely to be a woman dying in childbirth in the United States than in Bosnia. High rates of gun crime, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not captured in GDP statistics because you get really rich people and really poor people. But it does tell you something. And clearly in the last 15 years, the US has really flown away from the UK, as have the other countries you mentioned, Canada, Australia, Netherlands, France, and not France, really. Uh, Netherlands, a few of the Nordics, really, really flown away. Like, you know, $10,000, $15,000 wealthier than we are when they were probably the same as us 15 years ago. On the America point as well, on the United States, I really think this is lost on a lot of UK viewers, people generally, right? Not everyone in the UK watches Navarro Media. If you're a graduate in the United States, you are so much better off than you are in the UK. So much better off, like immeasurably better off. The graduate dividend in the US is I think it's about three to four times what it is now in the UK. We're now at a point really with several industries, and nursing is the cutting edge of this, where actually it makes no sense to go to university and to get the £56,000 worth of debt because you're not going to earn a significant amount of money more over the duration of your career to make that worthwhile, basically. Whereas the United States, and like he said, you know, it's spiraling inequality, crazy inequality compared to the UK even, while nursing in the US is remunerated to a far better extent than it is here. Far better. And I think this is really lost on a lot, a lot of Brits, Mike. We think, oh, well, we've got the NHS. Thank God we're not in the US. Well, actually, for a really big minority of people, not everybody, I wouldn't want to be very poor in the US, but if you're middle income or even lower middle income, personally, right now, if I was somebody under 30 with a university degree, I would rather be in the United States. 
And then having been in Poland last year, you go to a city like Poznan, uh, Gdansk, Warsaw, Katowice, any of these big cities, again, I would far rather be a graduate under 30 in these countries. Now, I'm not going to go into, and why am I saying somebody older? Well, because in the UK, if you're older, you tend to be an asset owner and you're benefiting from these overinflated assets, right? Park that for a moment. For most people who are really missing out, or even say 40, somebody under 40 who rents, has a university degree, I don't know how you can make the argument it's better to live here than in Poland, having been there. And just to conclude on what you were saying earlier, Michael, Slovenia is overtaking us. I think basically by 2030, Poland's going to be in the same situation, right? And that is a remarkable statistic. If you said to somebody in 1990 that Poland will be a more prosperous country on a per capita basis, by price, you know, PPP is the best way to do it because it's in local currency. On a per person basis, Poland will be wealthier than the UK. You would have been laughed out of town. It's happening. It's happening. And it's happening because of political decisions made after 2010 in particular. And Michael, to answer your point, well, they recognize the scale of the problems, but they're not really willing to talk about the plausible solutions. This is ideology, isn't it? You know, you say, oh my God, you know, I've just lost my hand and you're holding the saw in your other hand, but you don't realize cause and effect because we haven't reached that point yet. I mean, to really sum that up, I saw on Twitter earlier this week, a former conservative advisor saying, if only Britain had a sovereign wealth fund and we'd invested the revenues generated by North Sea oil into that like Norway did. Yeah, if only a lady called Margaret Thatcher decided precisely not to do that. Even for somebody like Tony Blair, that was a ridiculous proposal. And yet here we are, conservatives saying, actually, that was probably a good idea. Too late. Too late. And for 10 years, people on the left opposing austerity saying, we need to build a high productivity economy through reinvestment, higher rates of tax, the public sector. We were laughed at. And guess what? We were right. But it's not about being right. It's about affecting change. And Michael, I think it's a really important point you make, which is that these very powerful people who at least now observe the country is getting poorer, well, that's a start. What's it going to take for them to realize that the reason why we're getting poorer is because of their ideas? You might be watching this thinking, look, the Financial Times is now on our side. Stephanie Flanders is now on our side. That's a good thing. Why don't you just celebrate it? And on one level, yes, it's a good thing I celebrate it, although they've only been pushed to that position because everything is so terrible for everyone. So it's not exactly something to celebrate, but great, I'll take whatever allies we can get. But the reason the self-criticism matters is because potentially the reasons they made those mistakes in the 2010s will lead them to make similar mistakes in the 2020s, right? And I do think tax is the big issue there. So people now seem to have recognized, oh, austerity was a bad idea. But why didn't you realize that at the time? Oh, because you were listening to the rich and powerful. Well, now when there is this sort of broad consensus that even a labor government wouldn't be able to increase taxes at all, is the reason that is a broad consensus that no one is willing to challenge because it's true, everyone's learned and everyone's now brilliant at economics, or is it because they're still listening to the rich and powerful? And the rich and powerful aren't particularly interested in austerity anymore because they recognize it was a failure. All they want is, you know, they're happy for the state to be active so long as their taxes don't get increased. If you got austerity wrong, ask why you got austerity wrong, and now look at yourself and think, are we getting taxes wrong this time around, right? Because we need the next Labour government to massively increase taxes, especially on the rich. But I mean, I wouldn't mind it being broad-based either. In France and in Scandinavia, taxes for everyone are a bit higher, but it's worth it because you get a much more, a much richer public sphere and your wages are higher anyway because of high levels of investment. So I, I'm not someone who thinks tax all has to be on the top 5%, but obviously it should be disproportionately on the top 5%. We all should be paying more, but you can't say that in public life, just as you couldn't say in the 2010s that the public debt doesn't really matter, or at least getting it down isn't the number one priority. And I feel like it, it's this sort of 
people holding this sort of these two kind of positions which are in tension. We were totally wrong in the 2010s, but we're not going to ask why. And the dogmas we have in the 2020s, we're not going to question them either. We're going to get to the 2030s, then all these people are going to say, oh, yeah, maybe we should have increased tax in the 2020s. Let's go on to our next story. Rishi Sunak has been Prime Minister for just over 100 days. In that time, he's had to sack a tax-avoiding former Chancellor, and his Deputy Prime Minister has been mired in apparently endless claims of bullying. Also, the economy has gone to shit. But how is he faring in the polls? Not very well. Now, given that introduction, you might not be surprised, but these are really bad for the guy. So net approval of Prime Ministers on or near 100 days into the job. So Tony Blair was plus 50, which was massive. Gordon Brown, plus 26. David Cameron, plus 27. Theresa May, plus 19. Boris Johnson, minus three. Rishi Sunak, minus 18. So people really do not like Rishi Sunak 100 days into the job. I have seen some Tories make the argument, which is, well, look, you're saying how has first 100 days gone? It's important to say, Michael, where's Liz Truss on that list? Well, she's not on the list because she didn't last 100 days. And, and, and by, that, by that measure, they say, well, look, he's doing quite well because he did enter power, which is, to be fair here, he did enter power in extraordinary moment. The, the markets have calmed a bit. We're not seeing, you know, manic, frenzied, betting against the pound with regards to the dollar. Yes, interest rates have gone up, but that's because of the Bank of England. I think, realistically, interest rates won't stay as high as they are now through to the next general election. Of course, things can change. But realistically, inflation is now beginning to fall. They'll probably be reducing interest rates at some point this year, even, let alone 2024. So I suppose there's lots of levels to this. First of all, it doesn't tell us very much, the first 100 days. What I found probably more interesting, Michael, but I think it's important to look at this alongside the poor poll ratings for Sunak, uh, were the commitments that he made, I think, on Thursday, which was, I have these five promises I'm making to the British people. And for people watching, I think the instinctive response is, well, hold on. Normally, when you come into the job, you make the promises and you say, judge me on the first 100 days. He's been there 100 days and he's now making the promises, right? So, Cut inflation, uh, stop people coming over the English Channel, things like this, cut GP, you know, weights and so on and so forth. What's interesting is the same day that he made those promises, you have the Bank of England increasing interest rates. I think a day earlier, you had the IMF, and it's just a projection, but it is still a projection, projecting that Russia's economy would grow more than the UK's in 2023. This is a country facing arguably the most stringent set of economic sanctions in the history of humanity. It's certainly up there. And they're growing more than us, right? That's quite significant. So I think there's so much going on here, Michael. It's difficult to get a firm read on it. And I think, to conclude, Sunak's job was to come in, and I think by the end of this year, just, just be on 30, low 30s, right? Which is still a 1997-star majority for Labour. And I think, and this is probably accurate, the Tories believe that in the final month, six weeks of campaigning, they'll, they'll close that gap. I'm sure they will, right? They have the best people in the world at this. Linton Crosby and his little, his little minions, they throw money at this. You know, they will be far better than Labour when it comes to paid social advertising. They'll be far better than Labour when it comes to using, you know, latest data analytic tools and so on and so forth. And of course, Labour won't have the get out the vote advantage, some might call it, of 2017, certainly. So it's, it's going to be an interesting one. 
I think right now, if you had to be a betting person, you'd say it'd be a significant Labour majority of 30 plus. Where I think Sunak is falling short is that he's not even getting to that like 30, low 30s, which should be the benchmark for the Tories in, in 2023. You still see many, many polls. I think I saw a poll maybe yesterday with the Tories on like low 20s, right? They're still on trust level polling. And surely it makes you wonder that must be posing questions to Conservatives. They must be scratching their heads thinking, look, we didn't expect to be ahead of Labour. We had an awful autumn in 2022. The objective economic conditions are very bad. But Sunak is slick. He did deliver the furlough scheme. He looks authoritative. He's not being accused of criminality like half the rest of the party. And yet he's broadly polling with the party the same as Truss. I think that's a really, really surprising statistic. I don't think many people expected that. I think they expected Labour leads of 10-15, not 25 points. Five pledges they are halving inflation, having the economy growing, debt falling, uh, waiting lists falling, and small boats being stopped. That was, that, that was announced on the 4th of January, so it's been around for a while, but they are fairly forgettable. I want to show you one more poll. This one's potentially more surprising than the last one we showed you. It's asking people what party they associate with these statements. So standing with British workers, Labour on 50%, Tories on 13%, spending for the NHS, Labour miles ahead, as you'd imagine. The more surprising one, lower taxes. So 40% of people associate Labour with lower taxes, compared to 17% of people who associate the Tories with lower taxes. When it comes to higher spending, they're basically neck and neck. We can go to some more and see the only ones which the Tories are winning on or winning or more strongly associated with is immigration. So tough on immigration, a Labour on 14%, the Tories on 36%, which I presume is why they like to talk about the small boats whenever they can, even though you know they've been in power for 13 years. Aaron, does anything stand out to you there? I mean, Labour being the party of low taxes. I mean, Labour haven't said they will tax people less than the Tories, but I suppose they haven't said anything about taxes really what do you make of that it's both obviously stupid but it's also reasonable in so much as people are paying more in the average person not the yeah, ultra rich people are paying more in taxes now than they felt they were before 2010 then of course you've got the additional thing of higher interest rates and so no interest rates were well no in 2010 interest rates were also very very low so i think people look at their mortgages they look at their their taxes national insurance and whatnot and that was a palaver as well, Michael. So I think people generally get the sense their national insurance is higher than it actually is, because for the whole of 2022, the Tories were saying, we're going to increase your uh, national insurance. And then they didn't for most people, earning less than about £58,000 a year. So I understand why somebody would say it, but I think it's, it's quite clear to me that Labour aren't going to reduce taxes for most people. I mean, A, they've not really said they're going to do that. B, I mean, they can't. The problems that we're facing now, chronically low investment, aging population, need to transition with regards to climate change, declining high streets, public services falling apart. Clearly, we're going to fund them. The vast majority of that has to fall on the backs of the wealthy. But clearly, we're not going to move to a low-tax society overnight, um, nor should we. Uh, you know, I would, I would plausibly see a world where Labour cut VAT by 5-10% for six months and maybe cut national insurance for middle and low income earners, which I think is a very wise thing to do. You can, of course, only do that if you really go after the super rich, which they're not really talking about. Uh, the one that sticks out is migration. And so clearly, I think the Tories are going to try and fight a general election on migration. And as an ancillary point to that, proposing that a Labour government would basically undermine Brexit. 
And of course, Stum has done his best. I think he's been right on this to say, well, we won't rejoin the EU. He said that, you know, repeatedly, much to the chagrin of the people that were most supportive of him for Labour leader in early 2020. I think he's right to do that. But they're now moving on to a new terrain. You see this with people like Nigel Farage. They say, well, we won't rejoin the European Union, but we'll still be under the ECHR. We'll still be subject to, you know, lawyers from overseas. We won't have a sovereign uh, immigration policy. We'll still be bound by laws not made in the UK. It'll be Brino, Brexit in name only. So I think on, on, on Brexit and I think on immigration, they'll try and save as many seats as they can. And I can see a world where, where that works, right? Because look, put yourself in this situation. This is the worst case scenario for Labour. We have a general election. I think the latest we can have a general election, Michael, is January 2025. Let's say we have a general election in December 2024. I think that's wise because it's colder, we've got shorter days, so on the ground canvassing is less effective as we found out in 2019, that helps the Tories. It also gives them more time, so inflation should have come down, interest rates should be lower, we should have come out of recession, this is their thinking. And at that point they can say, look, since 2019 we've delivered Brexit, we got out of the pandemic, and we've got on top of inflation, and we're growing again. And to at least 30% of the, of the public, the voting public, that will be adequate. The question is, how far can you take that? If they can get above 35, 36%, then you're, you're looking plausibly at a hung parliament. There are, of course, we've not talked about this, boundary changes. That is the best case scenario, I think, for the Tories. And that's a lot of ifs, buts, and maybes. But you can see how that plays out. But right now, they're facing Armageddon. Moving on. Rishi Sunak celebrated his first 100 days in office with an interview with Piers Morgan. This is what happened. You don't drink. You just hate the taste of alcohol, right? Yes. You've never smoked? No. Never taken drugs? Mm -mm. You're stinking rich. Right? Well, it's a matter of degree. I think most people would consider that I am, I'm financially fortunate, yes. <laughs> Aaron, is this the latest frontier in political correctness gone mad? You're not allowed to call people rich anymore. You have to call them financially fortunate. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're laughing, but what else? I mean, that's, that's, probably, the, that's probably the most but diplomatic yeah. way of him saying it, right? What else he meant to say? He meant to say, my wife's a billionaire. If you're Donald Trump, you'd say, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm rich. I've been very successful. You know, I'm much richer than my parents. Because he, you know, he did make a lot of money in, in his own right. He was a banker in the city, right? So I think, you know, obviously he got all the privileges in life. He went to Winchester, et cetera, et cetera. But he did also yeah, make but, a lot of money yeah, in the, but the money, sector. No, but the money he has with his wife is primarily his wife's money. Oh yeah, the, you know, yeah he was. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was working financial services. Yeah, he would have owned like a you know, a nice house, summer house. You know, he he would have you know he would be living the Financial Times how to spend it supplement lifestyle. I don't doubt it, Michael. But like he is on the Sunday Times rich list because of his wife. Yeah. So he can't I mean, say, yeah, I made it. I think if he if he had made it, I think that's a much more ballsy answer, right? Because I think there is a certain part of the population that's like. He made it. Good, good for him. He, he, he sold things that people wanted. Fine. I don't have a problem with that. You know, I, I know that, you know, we don't think like that, generally speaking, or, you know, our audience doesn't think like that. Most Tory voters do, you know, that's fine. But that isn't, that isn't what he's done. You know, it's, it's inherited wealth on the behalf of his wife. So it's a really, really sticky, sticky wicket for him. As we've said, this is going to be the final Tisky Sour. Next week, we're moving to 6pm. We're moving to a simpler name, Navarra Live. Easier to explain. But with this being our last Tisky Sour, let's take a look at how the show began, or at least the, the video version, 602 episodes ago. We're live. 
But not anymore. Oh, no. Well, presumably. Gary, are we live? Oh. I tweeted the link. Well, you could have told us we were live. No, you didn't. And I didn't even tweet the link. Retweet my... I just tweeted the link, so retweet me. This is ridiculous. How is this? This is no way to start <laughs> a new series of Siski Sour and myself and Michael Walker. We sounded like Beavis and Butthead. Well, so there's something weird going on with my tooth. I'm not sure what's going on. It seemed like there was something in there. Gary didn't tell us we were going live. He didn't tell, them, tell me if there was something in my tooth. Fox would never let me go live if there was something in my tooth. Oh, God, Fox. Fox would have the, you know, sonic airbrush. <laughs> you know, he'd be pinned down, Michael. Yeah. Affectionist Fox. What were we doing? Um, was there 600 what? episodes, you said, Michael? Yeah, when Fox told me that, I was like, there cannot have been 600 episodes. I don't understand how the maths works. But no, we, we went through the Tisky Sour playlist. There has been 600 episodes. So yeah, I mean, it's been a joy. I mean, we are continuing. No wonder you're such a good host. Anywhere. That is what, yeah, look, looking at the camera three days a week does make you, I, I would say to people, I'm just as comfortable talking to a camera as I am to like a real person now. If you, t if you speak to it this often, you get used to it, don't you? Wish I had an auto cue in the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Can't think I'm of the I'm very happy. Anymore, how, can I say one thing actually, Michael? Yeah, go on. Because I know, and you said it earlier on, like there's loads of depressing news, loads of bad news, people, you know, and, and justifiably, right? Sort of black pill, doom mongering. But I do think that the rise of alternative media makes the next several years and what we're presently going through really different to what was experienced between 2008, 2010, between the global financial crisis and austerity. Like I was a young person, early 20s, living through that. And it was, it was um, incredibly difficult to see all that happening, to see all the talking heads talking so much nonsense and for it not to be challenged, and to see very quickly an establishment consensus around austerity. That can't happen in the same way ever again because of how media now works. Not just, of course, you know, independent media like Navarra Media, but also I think social media plays a big role too. And so I think that's something people should be really positive about, right? We did lots of black bell doom mongering in the middle of the show, but I think also the growth of Navarra Media speaks something really significant about piercing establishment Consent building. It can't be done like that ever again. And that's because of the people that help fund us. I feel very positive about it. I mean, I'm not sure if I've, I probably have mentioned this on the show before, but when I first started The Fix, which was our, there's been a few iterations of this show. The first iteration was called The Fix. When I started that, it's because I'd been living in Spain for a year, was like blown away by the fact that they had this channel called La Twerker, which would talk about like left wing politics and they get 25,000 views on, on an episode and it'd be like, what? 25,000 people are watching a leftist YouTube show. This is insane. We need something like that in the UK. So I went to the Navarro media team, Aaron and everyone. They, they believed in the project. So we did that on the channel. And now we're getting, well, more than 25,000 per show. So um, we're, we're living the dream, Aaron. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure going through the years with you. It's just the start, Michael. It is really just the start. I think we're going to build something really sensational in the next 10 years. And that's not because of like the star power of Ash or you. And of course, that's a factor too. Otherwise, we wouldn't be successful. But it's because we have a mission, right? And there are so many people in the media, particularly in Britain, without a mission. And that includes in progressive media. They really don't want to change things. They just kind of want to get their pension, check out, get on the property ladder. We have a mission. If Navarro doesn't have a mission, it has no point. And that mission is to change things in the interests of working people in this country. So let's get on with it. And we're going to get on with it five nights a week. So do make sure you tune in from 6 p.m. on Monday. We don't want you turning up at 7 p.m. and complaining because you didn't know about the time change. You have been warned, okay? If you know any friends who normally watch live but weren't watching today, text them. Say on Monday it's going to be 6 p.m. 
Although you can, of course, uh, watch it afterwards as well. Aaron, have a fantastic weekend. You too, Michael. I look forward to hosting on Tuesday. I'll be with um, Harriet Prothero Sultani. So that'll be fun. Um, and good luck on Monday on the first ever Navarro Live. The first ever Navarro Live. For the last time ever, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.